I'm Chris Reback. This is Working Capital Conversations. For years, Claudia Zeisberger has found herself being asked what might seem like a straightforward question. What is private equity? It also might seem like a surprising question, given that global private equity assets under management run at about $2.5 trillion. It's not like we're talking about some hidden asset class. But the question came frequently and in different forms, sometimes about doing PE deals, other times about managing PE investments, still others about fund management and the GPLP relationship. So over the years, Zeisberger, who is the Senior Affiliate Professor of Decision Sciences and Entrepreneurship and Family Enterprise at INSEAD, as well as founder and academic director of the school's private equity center, would write two to three page primers on the various topics and hand them out. Now Zeisberger has taken those primers and added original insights from some of the leading private equity players globally and co-authored two books, Mastering Private Equity and the accompanying case studies, Private Equity in Action. Of course, being based in Singapore and continually on a plane, I caught up with her in Hong Kong. Zeisberger has a unique view not only into private equity's history, but also current trends. So what is private equity and what's next for this mammoth asset class? That's what we discussed. Claudia, thanks for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. It's nice to connect uh, from around the world. Yes, from, from all the way around the world. Op- opposite, uh, opposite times, opposite sides of the world, but uh, here we are. The technology is... Uh, is excellent, and the Skype connection is very clear. So, uh, so off we'll go. Um, I, I want to ask you um, about the books, um, as well as about private equity trends, particularly in Asia. Um, let's start though with the books, as I'm sure you're extremely proud and maybe even just a little relieved to have them published. So, congratulations on that. Um, tell me about them. Why did you write them, and uh, who are they for? So, uh, yes, absolutely. was quite happy to hand the script over earlier this year um, and see them now ready to be done on the shelf. Um, so the books were written for both the professional audience as well as my audiences in my classes from MBAs to executives. The reason why I wrote them was very clearly to, um, to, to provide some clarity um, in the private equity and venture capital space. Private equity and venture capital has come of age. I would argue it's really become a mainstream asset class. And uh, it is just important that all parties around the table are ready to um, uh, are able to understand what private equity and venture capital is, how it's being structured, what the dynamics are in the industry, and uh, in particular, how to have um, the right conversation with their counterparties. I often argue that there's uh, there's nothing helped uh, by having an uneducated counterparty. It doesn't matter whether it is uh, your your investee companies, your uh, your potential investors, if they are coming with the wrong expectations uh, to the table. That certainly does not help the private equity firms. And and it came about actually. Uh, my understanding is um, this is maybe something that you've been writing over the years, that some of these essays and, and chapters or sections that you created um, were 
items or areas that you had written over the years for you know people you know maybe they're executives maybe they were students maybe they're for courses but but that you you know to try to help people understand okay here's what this means here's how you should think about this and and is it someplace along that route that you said wait a minute you know we we could actually compile all this what's missing i've got all of these sections or chapters or or you know monographs perhaps but there's really a full book here and people keep asking me for this help i ought to put all of this together into into one book is is that right is that kind of how this came together Yes, pretty much. So over the years, I'd be, I've been writing uh, what I called primers on specific parts um, of the private equity value chain, be it uh, fundraising, be it uh, venture funding, be it uh, impact investing, uh, real estate investing. And the reason was very simple. So I would come out of a class or a, a conference or a workshop with executives and people would say, well, this was fantastic, but I am really interested in X, Y, or Z, a specific topic that, given the time constraint for most of my engagements, we just didn't have the time to address. So I started writing uh, two, three pages initially, and some of them then became actually quite lengthy uh, dissertations um, with uh, links to potential sources. And at one point, I looked at them and I said, look, this all this should really be put into a book because it would make my life a lot easier. I could just say, please read the book, chapter 22, and you're off to the races. Um, so that was really, yeah, that was the starting point for the book. So it, it wasn't really for other people, it was to make your own life easier. Now I understand. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> In a true German fashion, yes. I wanted to be very efficient. <laughs> yeah, I, I got it. I got, and, and you understand as well that now that you've written a book, you're obliged to subsequently do a blog. I mean, you can't, in this age, you cannot stop just with the book. I mean, you've, you've really painted yourself in a corner, you understand. Yeah, I've been told so. And I'm just wondering, while I have at INSEAD quite a few colleagues, obviously, especially in the economics department, that do uh, write blogs regularly. I'm just wondering if there's enough for a blog to kind of feed the blog on a, let's say, daily, certainly not, I think, weekly, maybe, but maybe monthly basis. So this this is on the list of things to do, yes. Okay, we will all stand by for that. Um, so in, in terms of the content of the book, and, and as well, well, I guess the editorial approach um, was the blending of your own insights, which you just described, and, and those primers that you've written uh, throughout the years and that you updated, obviously, and, and your colleagues, um, but also uh, really significant and important contributions from global professionals. Um, how, how did you pull that off? Well, I mean, first, I mean, the idea came uh, last year in summer where, we, where I said, look, the book should really not be uh, the private equity world, according to Claudia. Um, and uh, the idea was to invite professionals to provide their own thoughts to one of the chapters that, for one reason or the other, was close to their heart. Um, and I started to reach out. Uh, the first one was uh, Graham Oldroyd a former partner at Bridgepoint, who's also an INSEAD alumnus, and I flew the idea past him. Um, he has been in my classes over the years, and he said, I think that's a great idea, and I would be happy to do the first one. So his uh, was the first one, and, uh, uh, which was fantastic. And from that point on, yeah, I reached out to the, um, uh, to the professionals in, uh, in my network. And this is basically, this is purely based on people that I had interacted with over the last decade in private equity um, that had come to INSEAD before. 
Um, uh, there goes uh, some credit also to uh, my co-author, Michael Prahl, who has obviously a fantastic network in the industry. And uh, he, between him and myself, we we did basically, um, yeah, approach them. And I have to say, there was uh, no one who said no. Um, everyone said we'd be happy to contribute. This is a worthwhile um, project. And the industry does require more education, and we would be happy to ensure that it goes into the right direction. And if our voice can be heard, so much the better. So I should also add, this, add that all the, uh, the, the guest uh, comments in the book are written by the guest authors in their own voice and were not edited. So you will see there are quite different styles. Some are quite um, cynical, some are quite funny, uh, some are quite serious about it. So it was good to see that they not all of them took themselves too serious. Yeah, it was really uh, useful and interesting to see that, and as well to get the different perspectives. I mean, the, you you reached out to folks globally um, from different perspectives in terms of what they did, um, how they invest, and uh, it it really it does really come out. And having the um, you know, obviously you you had a. a, a a professional, but a, a an investing career, you know, it, it, before your academic career. Um, but you know, now that you've been whatever, I guess, ten, twelve years in academia, to have uh, that matched up with real time professionals, um, it, it's a, it's a terrific approach, and I think really uh, um, helps the helps the reader. Um, as you read the contributions from the global professionals, um, what, what surprised you? What did what did you learn? That, that's an interesting question. Um, my first, uh, my first take as the uh, as the contributions came in uh, over the last year was that private equity is complex. It uh, it takes uh, it takes a village. It takes a, a real professional, thoughtful, and competent team to run a professional uh, private equity franchise, especially over time. So as I as I always say, everyone can raise a first-time fund, potentially a second-time fund. Um, the proofs and the pudding by fund number three, because by that time, obviously, the results of fund number one are in, and uh, the LPs can uh, can see what the cash on cash returns are. Um, you don't sell anymore just a promise. You sell real investments with real activities and real results. But I also noticed that uh, private equity is getting more complex. So I don't think it was ever uh, an easy way to, to, to deploy capital, but it's getting more complex in today's environment. This is partly driven by the demands from the LPs, partly driven by the regulatory environment, and to some extent by more competition. And more competition, not just from more GPs and different GPs, um, but also competition from some of the more uh yeah the more advanced or the more aggressive lps yeah that uh that that that's a great compilation of uh what what's going on and and i'm hearing you say how running a uh a strong pe fund takes a village and takes that type of teamwork um and that kind of came together as well in the telling of the stories in the book by having 
you know, it's not just one voice. It's a, it's a team of uh, folks with the, uh, you know, with the professionals that you were able to reach out to. So, so just to finish off on the book, um, take me quickly through the sections or take our listeners quickly through the sections. There are five of them, uh, the private equity overview and then doing deals in PE, um, managing the private equity investments, uh, fund management, and the GPLP relationship, and then the evolution of uh, private equity. Um, I can, you know, I can prompt you if you uh, don't remember exactly which the five parts. And, and we should mention we're talking right now about uh, um, the the mastering private equity book. You as, have as well the private equity in action, which are the cases. But um, take take me through each of the five sections quickly, and how did you decide to organize it that way? Sure. So uh, we started off with uh, with the private equity overview section to uh, give uh, those readers a leg up that are not from the industry, that are not professionals. So we go over the individuals, the essentials of private equity. What actually is private equity? What is a private equity fund? What is that vehicle? What are LPs, GPs? So it is really, really important to get the language right. Once you dive deeper into the chapters, we just reference back to the earlier chapters, obviously, if there's if there's a need to. Um, but we also expect the reader to have that language under his or her belt. We then basically have uh, venture growth buyout as kind of the standard uh, uh, private equity activities. And then we have in chapter five, a few alternative strategies that we touch on. So distressed investing, real estate, infrastructure, and so on. Then section two goes into doing deals in private equity. And we basically go down the value chain. I mean, private equity, uh, I, I tend to say in class, it's a, it's a simple business. You buy minority or majority stake, you improve, and then you sell. So we basically step exactly down uh, that process. So what is deal sourcing, target valuation? How do you price? What's the dynamics when you price a deal? Uh, how do you structure it? And then we have a quite a heavy chapter on transaction documentation, as you will appreciate. It's not an easy one to squeeze into one chapter. The next part then is uh, managing the PE investments. To what extent, uh, what do you actually do once you've executed the deal? Um, you um, There's the corporate governance angle. There's obviously the work with management teams. How do you incentivize management teams uh, to stay on the ball and to achieve those targets that, you, that you've set? Um, we talk about operational value creation in this day and age, obviously an incredibly important chapter. And then we touch on uh, responsible investment, the uh, impact investment slash ESG um, genesis. And obviously then the last one is exits, how to do exits, how to prep for exits and how to get them right. Then we go over to the fund management side and look at the GPLP relationship a little bit closer. Obviously, it starts off with uh, fund formation, how to set up a fund, fundraising, LP portfolio management, performance reporting, and then winding down a fund, especially in this day and age, talking about tail end funds um, and a little bit on zombie funds as well. So we felt that was important. Um, LP portfolio management was an important one because I do engage quite a lot with uh, LPs of all shapes and colors from large institutionals, uh, pension plans, uh, insur uh, insurers to sovereign wealth funds all the way to family offices. 
And obviously the whole idea around um, managing or getting the target exposure to private equity was very, very important. And LPs do struggle with it, especially newcomers to the industry. And then maintaining that exposure without a ballooning portfolio was very important. We then felt uh, in the evolution of PE, we wanted to touch on a couple of things that uh, have, of course, become very important over the last five to 10 years. And that's uh, direct investment, uh, co-investments and direct investments by LPs, uh, listed private equity firms. Um, There is a chapter on risk management in private equity, which is a little bit of a nudge, if you like, towards the industry. Um, I wish at times the industry would be a bit clearer about its communication on how it thinks about risk. So I'm hoping that this chapter will potentially lead to further articles and communications, conversations with PE funds as well as with LPs. Then we look obviously at secondaries. I mean, given the dry powder in the secondary markets right now, this was not to be avoided. And then we felt in the last chapter um, we wanted the um, to, to be heard as authors because the rest of the book is written very much uh, at arm's length with, um, we, I mean, we try not to bring our biases in and hopefully have been able to achieve that. But the last chapter is really basically a comment uh, by where each, uh, uh, my two co-authors and myself, each take a part and basically write about what's close to our heart. So that basically follows exactly the, um, um, yeah, the, 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 the deal making in private equity. And we structured it in such a way that it's easy for people to jump in yeah. and uh, find what they're looking for. Yeah, no, it, it is. And, and, and that's very clear. And you, it kind of ends, as, as you point out, with uh, more of the personal views and, and exploring some of the key themes that will shape private equity and venture capital um, in, into the future, which, which segues into the next part of this conversation that I wanted to have with you. And that's about trends and the, the trends in private equity. You, you just touched on one of them, which is, you know, the, the item that maybe you learned or, or surprised you or that you really took away as you as the professionals were contributing. Um, and that was the complexity that you just mentioned, the concept that private equity is is getting more complex. Um, tell me more about that. Who, who does that help? Who is that hurting? Um, wh- or what are you seeing in, in terms of secondary effects, maybe, in terms of private equity, you know, there's, there's going to be, if it's getting more complex than necessarily, I would assume, there are going to be reactions and counter reactions to that. So what are you seeing in terms of secondary effects as well? So where do I start? Uh, let's start with, uh, with, with actually what private equity is or is not. I think nowadays, uh, as I mentioned in the book, we start off with the what I call traditional private equity strategies. So there's venture, there's growth equity, and then there's buyout. But I think nowadays uh, I, we need to really talk about private capital. There's much more to 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 that industry. There, uh, it has um, partly because of its attractiveness and uh, the the capital flow into the industry. Um, certain fund franchises have started to expand, adding real estate, adding infrastructure, adding distressed investment funds. And uh, I mean, just look at what's going on on the, on the private debt side these days. This is probably one of the um, uh, least commented on and most interesting areas right now, just looking at the new players coming into that. So that's one part. Let's call it private capital, which basically includes then everything that is being deployed in kind of a 
private equity type uh, fund uh, structure. The next part that uh, is really um, complex and is changing is uh, the, uh, the, the the trends in general. I think uh, private equity these days, for example, uh, needs to have an opinion at least and needs to be educated about uh, technology and the uh, digitization of businesses out there. This ties to some extent back on operational value creation, but that has led, because you're asking for secondary effects, this has led um, to the interest from private equity funds in technology and digitization has led to a, um, yeah, a conversion of private equity and venture capital. Uh, I've had um, the, the opportunity to, to sit in several conversations where you had a venture capital fund on one side and you had a true blue private equity operator on the other side. And both of them were basically having the conversation about, look, we need to have some thoughtful and educated answers to our portfolio companies when it comes to digitization. You guys obviously are in that space to examine for you, your venture funds, your, your investee companies to some extent drive that trend. Um, is there, does it make sense for us to come closer together? I think this is kind of unique nowadays uh, in, the, um, in this environment. And then obviously, I mean, we could, um, uh, we could have a long conversation. I don't think we want to do that right now in the interest of our listeners um, to uh, about the, 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 the rules and regulation in various continents from AIFM in Europe to the various SEC rules in North America and to various basically environments here. But two trends basically I wanted to potentially touch on as well in addition is number one, the um, kind of um, yeah, uh, standardization of uh, large asset managers. So some of the larger private equity houses has, have really turned into asset management firms. When you look in particular at some of the um, of the firms, and, qu- and quite a few across of them, whilst they may have all started off, let's say, in the buyout space, they are actually evolving in quite different directions. Some of them more focused on uh, on the distressed and turnaround side. Others more focused on the uh, on the real estate side. Whilst others are trying to be reasonably balanced with everything in the portfolio, from hedge funds to debt to credit to private equity. But overall, in quite a few of them, private equity is now a smaller part of the whole pie. And that, to some extent, um, raises the eyebrows with at least some of the LPs from what I'm hearing. Um, And then the last trend I wanted to mention is basically the specialization of funds. Um, Funds, given larger competition, given the demand from LPs that are very clearly asking for certain capabilities in the fund, we're seeing a much greater specialization in the industry. So the development of um, what you may call niche alpha. So we are very good in one specific niche and we have to be that and we have to do so to raise funds to 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 justify why we are approaching our LPs and what we will be doing with uh, with it. I think to some extent that trend is driven by the desire from the LP side to invest in funds that have operational value capabilities, operational value creation capabilities. Because 
to be able to argue that you cannot really be um, yeah, a jack of all trades. You, you cannot argue that you can do so across all industries unless you have a significant team in terms of size and people and manpower, basically boots on the ground. Um, in the absence of that, you, you're kind of nudged um, to, to specialize. And is that when you were talking first about uh, when you were discussing the standardization um, and, and really turning into large asset managers, that sounded, though, slightly different than the specialization that you were just saying is required. Because on the one hand, that you know, historic private equity firms broadening into a wider range of, of asset management capabilities versus, at least as I was trying to interpret this, versus um, the need to really be able to create, you know, in your words, niche uh, alpha. Um, how do you square those two? Exactly. I mean, that leads to then uh, uh, a final point, and that's potentially the overarching trend. Um, you're seeing kind of what I call a bifurcation in private mm. equity. Yeah, yeah. Um, again, also to some extent, this may be driven by the desire of some of the larger LPs to reduce the number of GP relationships. So you end up having the kind of haves and have nots. It's, that may be an extreme uh, point because um, you know even the even the smaller niche players have had no issues whatsoever to raise funds. But if you think about it, some of the large LPs saying we want to go from I don't know, let's use a number, 150 GP relationships down to 50. That basically will put 100 GP relationships on the block. So the question is, what does that, um, I mean, my, my argument is, is very often then, how will you be able to maintain that? Because some of the large players must deploy new funds uh, to a large, to very large new funds on an annual basis. So how you then basically maintain relationship with only 50 or 80 GPs remains to be seen. But that right now is clearly being discussed and with some of the LPs already being executed. So if you're not part of the of that universe that some of the larger GP uh, LPs can allocate to, um, you need to basically stand out for different reasons, and that's where the specialization comes in. Got it. And you wrote as well recently in the uh, LSE Business Review, the London School of Economics Business Review. You wrote you wrote about a tsunami of capital. Um, wh why do you yeah. see inflows continuing? Yeah. Well. Um, yeah, that, that uh, basically is, uh, I've, I've been questioned on, on that word. I had quite a few emails uh, after it was published. Um, so, well, I mean, look at the world around you. Um, we have, we're in a low interest environment and interests, I mean, there has been one or two points in history where they jumped quickly, but let's assume this is not one of those points will remain low for the, for the time coming. Um, so we have, seen that there are quite a few of the LPs that have stayed away from private equity or private capital in general in the past have realized that they really cannot afford to ignore a new asset class that has arguably um, achieved uh, interesting returns uh, to some extent uh, better than the public markets. So we've seen the Norwegian pension plans, Japan's GPIF basically jump into the fray as well. And those are all very, very large investors. Um, pension plans in general all around the world, particularly Europe and North America, uh, do have their issues because of their underfunding. 
they will therefore, by definition, be interested in an asset class that can achieve their target returns. Then uh, we have new sovereign wealth funds that uh, are coming in. Just the existing sovereign wealth funds alone have added around a trillion in investable assets in, uh, uh, in the last three years. That is a large amount of capital. And we have new uh, sovereign wealth funds coming to, uh, to the table from the, uh, from the emerging markets. Look at Africa setting up new sovereign wealth funds that will all be quite well funded. Um, so I think the um, overall the tsunami of capital that we're, that we're seeing is uh, to some extent potentially even driven by the trend of some of the LPs to go direct um, because uh, the funds that are allocated to the direct investment strategy are normally uh, new funds out of the total AUM of LPs that are being carved out uh, to go into that direction. So I don't think there will be a shortage of uh, funding flowing in, in, the, uh, in the coming years. And, and I imagine that that would um, fuel as well some of what you were just talking about, about that bifurcation, that uh, as that as the inflows continue, there will be uh, increased need for, you know, firms to focus on what they do well and, and you know, and really prove that. And then other firms, uh, you know, maybe branching out into broader areas if the uh, if the funding is there. Um, to to close out or to start to close out this conversation, um, I, I, particularly sitting here in the U.S., I, I can't help but note your uh, um, reference in that piece, in the LSE piece, to the Alan Greenspan phrasing of irrational exuberance. And you wrote that, um, and I, I was struck by it, that you wrote that the consequences of such irrational exuberance are starting to show. Um, talk to me about that, because that's a that's a phrase, particularly here in the U.S., that uh, that carries some some meaning and some significance. And uh, it's interesting to me. Does it carry significance as well globally? I mean, do do folks get get that? I mean, you you know, you obviously do. Do do folks get that reference uh, if you were to use that around the world? People do, and uh, people will people pay attention to that and then say why why irrational. I'm just, uh, I come from the point that investors need to be aware of the long-term, mid-term to long-term implications when so much capital is flowing into the industry. Um, and here's to, uh, to, to, to some extent uh, why. With so much money coming in, um, and to, be, to argue, basically, the, the LPs have seen PE perform very well. That is the reason why fundraising has been so easy for the GPs. You return money to your LPs. Of course, the LPs are happy to re-up basically for your future fundraising. But that has consequences. And we're seeing that already now. And maybe we see it here in Asia where I am based uh, more so. And maybe that kind of shapes my thinking. But um, globally, we've seen deal making being reasonably slow, at least in 2016. 2017, right now, we see a slight pickup and we'll see how this will continue. Um, but obviously, there's no surprise because with more money in the market, the, as soon as a deal comes uh, on the table, you have several uh, operators showing up to the deal. More people, more parties showing up to the deal obviously drives, uh, obviously drives up prices. 
Um, and deals are done nowadays at real ambitious valuations. So we have, uh, I know in the in the U.S. Uh, end of last year, someone said at a conference on the large GP said, well, 10 is the new eight now, and referring <laughs> to EBITDA multiples. Uh-huh. And to be honest, here in, in, in Asia, we would be very happy to, to see 10 as the new eight. Uh, here, rather, it is 20 as the new eight. Wow. So when you look across uh, Asian deals, especially let's say China and India, um, you've seen 15 to 20 times EBITDA is pretty much uh, where the deals are being done right now. In China, if you add tech deals to that uh, equation, to that universe, um, the, uh, the multiple is rather 29 times EBITDA. Um, and there have been individual deals done uh, significantly higher than that. So the question basically remains, uh, will those ambitious deals, so those deals done at such ambitious valuation, will private equity be able to manage them to a successful exit, meaning a profitable exit in the years to come? And look, I mean, private equity has often been pointed to as um, you know overstretching, overreaching, and there are good arguments being being made, why those valuations are um, uh, right, uh, why there is enough potential for those companies to do well in the years to come and surprise everyone. But uh, for the experienced uh, participants of the private equity market, those are ambitious prices to be paid. On the other hand, you must basically deploy in private equity. So all those large funds being raised right now, um, one starts basically wondering you know, at one point they will need to come to the market and will need to basically pay those uh, ambitious deals. Now, on the other hand, uh, fewer deals being done right now, let's say market the money stays on the sidelines, obviously will lead to fewer exits uh, in the future. It's a, it's, that's a simple argument. Um, slower deal activity lead to rising dry powder, and that may make the LPs less happy with private equity, um, thereby potentially looking for yeah greener pastures somewhere else. Um, multiples at record levels uh, will obviously also encourage quick exits. So if I see high valuations out there, you know, one may uh, exit a deal much faster than uh, one had planned to, which then obviously questions the argument of operational value creation, um, which is obviously impossible to do if uh, deals are only being held uh, for a short period of time. So those are my concerns. Yeah, those are. And and I guess if you're looking at the potential of a uh, 29 you know, times EBITDA uh, multiple, um, pretty hard to consider holding on to uh, something when, uh, you know, if you're looking at that potential. And I understand that was on the high end uh, of some of the deals in China. But, um, yeah, those are those are some impressive multiples. Um, Claudia, thank you. Thank you for your time and, and congratulations on the uh, two books, the Mastering Private Equity and Private Equity in Action, um, a, a, an incredible overview of uh, private equity and, and venture capital, and then uh, case studies as well to, to help folks um, really get through it and see it all in action. So thank you for the books and uh, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. It was a pleasure. 